Oh, it's good to be here. Uh, and God bless you. I love being at these eye-lifting occasions. I'm mindful that Jesus said to his disciples, open your eyes in John chapter 4. So these were the people who were closest to him and knew him the best. And yet it was to them that he said, lift up your eyes, look at the big picture. And I don't know if you're anything like me, but sometimes if I'm jogging, I find myself just looking at the path right in front of me. And I have to remind myself and deliberately lift up my gaze to take in the big picture of the beauty of God's creation around me and the inspiration uh, that he affords. And so we have to align our hearts and our minds from time to time a little bit like you have to align the tires on a car occasionally or tune the guitar strings or the piano keys because the tendency of our hearts is to get some mission drift over time. And so occasions like this are really good for helping us to see the big picture. Uh, remember the days before the GPSs? It was a challenge. But the scriptures are like our, our GPS system. And in the old days, the MAF pilots, the missionary pilots, used to have to fly just by sight, and they weren't sure when to get down under the clouds, and were they close or not, and what was the approach to the airstrip. But these days, they can just plug in the coordinates, and they come right down through those clouds, and lo and behold, as you're approaching just under the clouds, there's the airstrip right there. I was just amazed at the accuracy of these things. And God's Word is like that. It gives us the big picture, and we know what's beyond those clouds and the uncertainties of life. So let me ask you a question as we get started. How many of you like surprises? Okay, about a third of us like surprises. <clears throat> Some of you are asking yourselves, now wait a minute, what kind of surprise is Steve talking about? <laughs> For example, my brother and I had an eight-foot python in our bedroom in the jungle one night, and it was eating our kittens one by one. Or on another occasion, our whole family, I was a year and a half old, my brother was two weeks old, and the canoe flipped over, it had an outboard motor on the back end of it, dad turned the arm of the outboard motor a little too fast, canoe flipped over, and mom grabbed my newborn baby brother, but they couldn't find me, and I was drifting off in that tea-colored water, and finally, dad called to Mabo, our Sawi friend, get up on top of that overturned canoe, see if you can see my son Stephen. And Mabo got up on top of the canoe and looked and pointed away over there, and dad swam over and picked me up, and guess what? They caught a crocodile within about 100 yards of that spot just 10 days later. Is that the kind of surprise I'm talking about? Well, <laughs> life is full of surprises, and life doesn't always go the way that we anticipate. And our culture likes to predict everything. We like to eliminate as much uncertainty as we possibly can, don't we? More often than not, it is in, the, in life's unplanned, surprising situations that we actually end up learning the most about ourselves and about God and about the difference between true alignment and where our hearts tend to take us. The Bible is full of surprises. Remember the flood? Despite all the warnings? A Sumerian named Abram being 
tapped on the shoulder by God and told, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless all nations through you. And he and his family ended up becoming the human fulcrums of redemptive history. David becomes a king, the shepherd boy becomes the king of the nation. Esther becomes the queen of a vast empire. Jesus himself surprised at virtually everything he said surprised people and everything he did surprised people. Virtually every page of scripture and all our favorite passages have elements of tremendous surprise. And I'm learning to worship God by a name that I haven't heard often, if ever, and that is Surpriser. The great Surpriser. Turn with me to the little book of Jonah. No surprise, Jonah is packed with surprises. It's a small book, but it's packed with meaning, and it tackles some big questions like, how does God view the nations of the world? What does God expect of his people with regard to the nations? And what factors can prevent us as God's people from accomplishing his, his mission? And I'm uh, aware that all of you know the story of Jonah very well. And so I'm going to leverage and benefit from that assumption. But let's read the first three verses or so here. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. Because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee, to run away from the Lord and God's command. So Jonah had some surprises on his personal journey and each one of us is, in a sense, writing a story in our lives. And God is writing a story in our lives. And Jonah's first surprise was simply this, who God loves and who he cares about and who he's thinking about. Nineveh? Why Nineveh? God's compassion extended well beyond Jonah's comfort zone. And God cared for people that Jonah didn't particularly care for. In fact, he feared and despised. The Assyrians, these feared, these terrible warriors who... Just a matter of decades later would invade Israel. So to the extent that the Assyrians were on Jonah's radar screen, it, I think, was not positive. Jonah was shocked and dismayed by God's call. And in fact, his response was to book tickets going in the opposite direction. You see, Jonah, I think, perceived something that sometimes we don't perceive, and that is God's motivation in sending him to Nineveh with this message of judgment was actually a mission of mercy. Why would God want to even bother warning the Ninevites about their evil and about the, the impending doom? It was because he wanted to give them an opportunity to repent. And in fact, later in chapter 4, Jonah says, 
God, I told you so. This is exactly what I was thinking you would do. You would relent and not bring about the judgment that you said would be coming. You are so merciful and I don't like it. It bothers me. So a mark of authenticity for God's people is our concern. For those who are separated us from us and, more importantly, from God, by all kinds of distance. We talked last night about beautiful feet. How many of us have gorgeous feet? Prize-winning feet. I remember one time I was in the People Mover. I think it was the Pittsburgh airport. No, it was Detroit before the new terminal. And I overheard a conversation and somebody saw somebody that they hadn't met in a long time, someone they recognized, say, hey, how are you doing? And the guy said, I'm doing really well, but not as good as that guy over there. I started eavesdropping on the conversation. The first person said, why? That person said, I sat next to him on the airplane. A few weeks ago, he spent the last $10 he had in his pocket on the Pennsylvania lottery. He won $58 million. Guess what went through my mind? Oh, they said, he's just coming back from Disney World. First thought that went through my mind was, if I had just won $58 million, I wouldn't be thinking Disney World. And then the second thought, I have to confess, was, Lord, why him? (laughs) Think of what I could have done with that money for noble purposes. And then the Lord convicted me and reminded me, Steve, I've given you a far greater privilege in stewardship, and that is the stewardship of the gospel message and the gifting to be part of my redemptive mission to the world. And so these distances that God's call uh, draws us to traverse include geographical distances. Those beautiful feet go the distance from the scene of the victory. Back to those who need to hear the message that the victory has been won. Social distances, economic distances, linguistic hurdles that need to be overcome as we learn these 6,800 languages around the world. Economic distances of the poverty that we encounter, linguistic, historical, cultural, spiritual distances of people whose worldview prevents them from hearing and understanding the message of the gospel. So you and I can be very assured that the idea of global mission is not a human construct. It's not something that somebody came up with except God himself, because this is not a natural inclination. To want to bless those who may hate you. Maybe in America we don't really know what it is like to have genuine enemies. We have lived in safety for so long, and yet perhaps more and more in our day we realize that not everybody Uh, wishes us the best. I feel like my parents' example is an illustration of these kinds of beautiful feet. And it was back in 1961 that mom and dad, responding to God's call, uh, with me in their arms, I was only about six months old at the time, uh, got on a ship and traveled out to Netherlands, New Guinea, which at that time was not yet a part of Indonesia, was almost a part of Indonesia. And we arrived in the highlands of this 1,500-mile long island called New Guinea. And a few missionaries who had preceded us, as we got off the airplane up there in the cool highlands, said, 
Don and Carol, we've just heard about a tribe, a fierce tribe living in tree houses down in the southern swamps. Would you be willing to take the gospel to them? It's not cool like it is up here in the highlands. It's very hot and humid. Dad and mom glanced at each other, and I can't help but think that a few questions raced through their hearts. And they said, sure, that's what we've come to do, to take God's message to people who have not heard it before. And dad went in with another missionary and made the first contact with five or six Sawi warriors who were brave enough to come out of the jungle when they heard the approaching uh, motorboat. And using sign language, dad got their help to build a little house about 20 feet by 20 feet, not large. And then explained to them, in about 10 days' time, I'm planning to come back with my wife. We have a little baby. We want to live here. Would you be willing to move out of the jungle and come around us? And he wasn't sure if they understood. But guess what? Ten days later, when we paddled all day by dugout canoe, starting when the sun rose in the morning from another tribe and another river system, and through the grasslands and down through the jungle into the Sawi domain, And we rounded that last bend as the sun was setting. Silhouetted against that tropical sunset was a throng of several hundred Sawi warriors waiting to welcome us. Hundreds of them in the shadows. This is the actual slide. It's very hard to make out because it mildewed over the years that my mother took from the canoe of the reception party with their spears and their birds of paradise headdresses and their bone daggers stuck in their armbands. And dad glanced at mom who was holding me as if to say, it's too late now. (laughs) There's no turning around. We are committed. May our faith sustain us. And then dad reached down and picked me up out of mom's arms and she followed as he got out of the canoe and made his way, kind of slipping and sliding through the mud, right into the middle of this throng of of warriors, not realizing that in the Sawi culture, if a man from another tribe or village or outgroup came with no weapons in his hands and was carrying a little baby, it was a guarantee that that person was coming with positive intentions. And it totally disarmed emotionally this throng of several hundred Sawi warriors. They closed in around us, started to feel and touch us to see if we were real. And then one of the warriors shouted a signal, Asa! And those long drums that some of the men were holding started to pound with a throbbing beat and they began to dance around us. Dad later described it as if we were at the eye of a human hurricane. And the women, seeing everything was going to be okay, started coming out of the jungle walls where they'd been hiding with their kids. And they joined in the dancing and they swept us up to the little thatched-roofed house there and danced around that house for three days and three nights, almost without stopping. Dad and mom said I was not the least bit concerned. I slept through much of it. And this became my home among the Sawi people. And as dad and mom began to learn the Sawi language and as three or four villages moved in from their isolated places in the jungle to be closer to us, they realized this was an amazing people. They lived in tree houses 40 or 50 feet off the surface of the swamp, partly because there was so much rain 240 inches of rain every year there in the swamp. Partly because there's fewer mosquitoes at that altitude at night. But mostly because the Sawi lived in fear of each other, mortal danger. 
And you're a little safer up in the tree because if someone tries to ambush you in the middle of the night, they're going to have to climb the tree to do it. And you'll have the advantage of altitude to be able to shoot at them from above. So these Sawi villages that moved in around us started to fight with each other and Dad realized these were cannibals and headhunters. And then perhaps most surprising of all, when he learned the language well enough to begin explaining the, the story about Jesus. And he went into the man house, this special house where only men were allowed to go in and that's where they would plan their next raid or their next hunting party. And he began recounting about Jesus and his team of disciples and how he was betrayed to death after three years of friendship by one of his disciples. Suddenly there was some chuckling and some snickering and one of the men in the back named Mahain said, Don, tell us more about Judas. Dad said, no, you want to know more about Jesus. He said, no, Judas, he sounds like one of us. Dad said, what do you mean? He said, we saw we were like that. We love to befriend someone from an outside group and welcome them to, to our village and to our feasts and over time, and they learn to trust us. And then when they finally think they're totally at home with us, we kill them and eat them. My dad's jaw almost dropped. And he thought, wow, we have a cross-cultural communication challenge on our hands. Went back in the house, explained what he just heard to mom, and they threw themselves on their knees before God pleading for some kind of insight or breakthrough. <clears throat> in the first few months, Mom counted 14 major battles fought in our front yard. Why in our front yard? Because that's the only cleared area they had to fight in. It made great territory for fighting. And Mom and Dad became accustomed to rushing out and grabbing me as the war cries would sound, pulling me back into the relative safety of our little thatched-roofed house. And finally, Dad said, as people were being killed in these battles, to the leaders of one of the villages, Kamor, he said, Carol and I came to bring a message of peace, but our presence here is causing all kinds of conflict. People are dying. You must make peace, and if you cannot make peace, then we're going to have to go to some group that wants to hear the message that we came to bring. But he wondered internally, how would they ever make peace? Because how could you convince your enemies in a treachery idealizing culture that you were serious about actually following through. And it was that night that he didn't know it, but there was a lot of talk going on in one of the houses among some of the chiefs. The next morning, Dad was studying language with his friend named Ari, and he heard a terrible noise, and he thought, oh no, here goes another battle, and he rushed out thinking he was going to have to break bows and arrows over his knees again and try to restore order, as I was so often uh, witnessed him doing in those early years. But this time he saw a very different sight. He saw a father who had just grabbed his newborn baby boy from the arms of its mother, his wife. Tears were streaming down her cheeks and she had thrown herself in the mud and she was crying out, why us? We only have one child. Does it have to be us? And then he ran with his little baby boy across the logs and through the mud over to the village of Hainam and he gave his little baby to the enemy village. My dad turned to, to, uh, to uh, his language helper and he said to him, what's happening here? And his friend said, I don't know what it's like where you come from. Maybe your people never fight with each other, but we Sawi fight all the time, as you've seen. You've been telling us we have to make peace. The only way we can make peace is by giving one of our own children to the enemy and then they will know that we're really serious and we're not intending to commit treachery.
Dad said, are they going to hurt that little baby boy? And he said, no, they're not going to. Because the peace only lasts as long as that child lives. So they will take good care of him. And that village will actually reciprocate. And shortly you'll see them give one of their baby boys to the first village. And there will be two peace children. We call them Tarop teams. Peace children. Dad went back in the house and shared what he had just witnessed once again with mom. And it suddenly dawned on them that this was the essence of the gospel. Two parties at war, one party wanting peace. So badly that he goes to the extreme step of actually giving his own son to the enemy. And doesn't Hebrews say he ever lives to make intercession for us? The peace hinges on the life of that son, that resurrected son. So, they started to realize, maybe God is showing us something here. Dad spent a few more days probing the linguistic implications of this concept with Ari. And then he went back to that same man house and he sat down and through the smoke, he started telling the story of Jesus once again. But this time he added a detail. He mentioned that Jesus was God's peace child, Miyakodon's Taroptim. And this time there wasn't snickering and slapping each other and joking. This time there was silence. And then Mahain, that same man, that warrior in the back, said, Wait a minute, Don. Didn't you tell us this Jesus was betrayed by another man named Judas? And Dad said, Yes. He said, Are you telling us that Jesus was actually a peace child? Dad said, Yes. The Creator's child given to us to establish peace. He said, Why didn't you tell us that the first time? <laughs> Dad said, I didn't realize that was an important detail. Mahain said, Important, that makes all the difference in the world. Because to betray a peace child to death is the worst sin that anyone can commit. And you could almost see literally the scales falling from the spiritual eyes of the warriors gathered in that house. And one of the first uh, chiefs to come, almost like Nicodemus, came to Jesus uh, under the cover of darkness. Hato came to dad and said, Don, you've been telling us about when we give a peace child, the Sawi warriors gather around and one by one we lay our hands on that baby and one by one we say, I accept this baby, this little boy, as a basis for peace between our village and the enemy. I want to do that with God's peace child, but I can't see him, so how can I tell him? Dad said, you may not be able to see him, but he's here and he's listening to you and he knows your heart. And you can express yourself through prayer and embrace him as your peace child. And Hato said, can my five wives come as well? Dad said, absolutely, bring your whole family. And it was the beginnings of a major breakthrough among the Sawi people. And I had the joy and the privilege of growing up in that context and witnessing the incredible dynamite of the power of the gospel unleashed among a people group, an entire society that had never been exposed to it in history before. Talk about privilege. Talk about responsibility. And so, one of the big surprises that Jonah encountered was just realizing that God's plan and his love far surpasses any plan or any ideas or any compassion that, joy, that Jonah had found naturally within his own warped heart. The second surprise that Jonah encounters that we'd like to develop for a couple minutes is who God uses 
Who is this Jonah? I mean, we hardly know anything about him outside of this little book. There's a couple of little references to him. And God uses him in some other situations in Israel. But Jonah is basically an obscure person. He's the son of Amittai. Do you know anything about Amittai? I doubt it. And he's from a town called Gath Heifer. How many of us know all about Gath Heifer? A little bit north of Nazareth. Not to mention he didn't want the job. He was not a volunteer for the, for the task. I think a lot of times we think God is looking for volunteers, and certainly he is very much looking for willing hearts. The eyes of the Lord search to and fro throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. But there are times when God conscripts people who maybe aren't fully willing, and he teaches us some important lessons in the process and opens up our eyes and helps us to become more aligned. And this was a massive task. Nineveh was a massive city in its day, possibly 600,000 people. So many people who were illiterate and didn't even know their left hand from their right hand. So many children took a long time to walk around the whole big city. It was a great city, one of the greatest cities on the face of the earth. And I'm sure Jonah felt a bit overwhelmed by this call. Have you ever felt overwhelmed? Maybe it's because well, you haven't come to grips with the scale of what God is calling us to do and to be involved in. But it's legitimate to feel overwhelmed. 7.5 billion people in the world today. 7.5 billion precious souls. And just to illustrate, because if you're like me, you can't wrap your mind around a statistic like that. It's kind of a statistic that's so big if you ever get on Worldometers, I challenge you sometime this week just to go on worldometers.com and watch the numbers of people who are being born and the numbers of people who are passing into eternity with every passing second in that clock. And 7.5 billion people, if we were to line up and each one of us was to have a foot of space in which to stand, basically a shoe's length, and we were to all line up, guess how long that line of precious human souls would stretch? around the earth, again and again and again. I think something like 54 times around the earth. 1.33 million miles long from here to the moon, back to the earth again, to the moon a second time, back to the earth, to the moon a third time, halfway back to the earth again. That line of precious men, women, and children who desperately need to hear the message. Oleh karena begitu besar kasih Allah akan dunia ini. Sehingga ia telah mengaruniakan anaknya yang tunggal. Supaya setiap orang yang percaya kepadanya tidak binasa. Melainkan memperoleh hidup yang kekal. The message of John 3.16 in the Indonesian language spoken by about 230 million people. And so... God uses people like Jonah. One of the most amazing <coughs> missionary models that I had as a kid growing up was a lady named Eleanor Young who had contracted polio, I think at the age of five, back in Spokane, Washington. And she had metal braces on her legs. Her growth had been inhibited because of the disease. She had these... Uh, uh, what are they called? The 
crutches that she would use. And she didn't let that stop her from what she believed since childhood would be her calling, and that was to take the gospel to an unreached people group. Guess where God eventually placed her? Among one of the fiercest and most isolated tribes, not in a flat part of New Guinea, but in the roughest 13, 14,000 foot high mountains in the spine of that great island. And guess what the people called her as she learned their language and immersed herself in their culture? They called her Bad Legs. And they loved her because she obviously loved them so much and because she needed them. And those brave warriors, instead of carrying weapons around, started to carry her around on kind of a litter from from village to village, and she would share her heart and the gospel, and the, the, the gospel went out, and I would challenge you to watch a video, Google it some, sometime, called Bad Legs. And another one on the Kimyal, K-I-M-Y-A-L, tribe, and how, when they received the translated scriptures that Eleanor worked on for years in their own language, and the incredible celebration of that time. It was back in uh, the Korean War that Ted Fletcher, on the front lines as a Marine, heard Billy Graham speak and received a copy of the scriptures from him and his life was transformed and he came back and eventually joined Mobile Oil, became a very successful salesman and then joined the Wall Street Journal and became national sales manager, married Peggy at one point in the process, had four kids, including my wife Arlene. And Ted and Peggy had wanted to be missionaries And they applied to various mission organizations and they were told, you're too old or you haven't had formal theological education or four kids is too many or you're too high-powered, we don't know what to do with you. And eventually a friend said, Ted, why don't you just start your own little ministry? And Ted and Peggy sensed God moving and speaking through that friend from New Zealand. And they started a ministry of sending out some short-term teams just out out of their location there in Northern Virginia out of their home. (laughs) Some of those short-term teams came back and wanted to go long-term, and guess what happened over time? Today we have Pioneers, a ministry, as Pastor Doug mentioned, with with incredible church-planting impact happening in over 100 countries around the world with around 3,200 spirit-filled emissaries of the gospel sharing the news. Why? Because Ted and Peggy were willing to respond to the call of God Uh, as it came. Ever think God can't use you? Think again. If he can use Jonah, if he can use Eleanor Young or Ted Fletcher from the corporate world, he can use any of us. Another surprise that Jonah encounters that I love is the whole study of the pagans in this account. I love the questions of the sailors on the ship when the storm came up. Who's responsible? What's your occupation, Jonah? What's your origin? What's your ethnic identity? And tell us about your religion. Who is your God? Because they were trying to get to the bottom of what's happening here. They asked very perceptive questions and they finally asked, what should we do? Tell us what to do. Because we are afraid of your great God. And they did their best to spare his life and they cried out to God. It says, and they obeyed. And it says, after the storm calmed, they greatly feared the God of Israel. When Jonah arrived in Nineveh, guess what happened? I would have expected to read, they stoned him and laughed him out of town. 
No. They repented from the king to the poorest man on the streets. And the Ninevites believed God, chapter 3, verse 5. This motivates me. As we go out, Jesus' words that the harvest is indeed ripe are as true today as they've ever been. People are waiting, in many cases, to hear the truth. They are hungry. Now, not everybody's going to respond affirmatively to the message when it arrives. There will be tremendous backlash from satanic forces. But in place after place, wherever we go, God has prepared men and women of peace, people like Cornelius who respond when the gospel message does come. So this motivates me. The harvest is indeed white. And the lack of workers is a significant issue. Um, some time ago when Arlene, uh, was, when, when the two of us were among one of the largest Muslim unreached people groups crowded into the western third of the island of Java, she prayed a prayer, Lord, use me any way you want to. She opened a bo- up a box of quilts, three quilts, in a care package that was sent to us lovingly stitched together by a group of elderly praying ladies in North Carolina. And her friend Dewi, who had fled to the city looking for work, saw these gorgeous quilts and said to Arlene, would you help me learn how to make one? Arlene kind of swallowed and said, well, I love sewing, but I've never made a quilt. Let's learn together. And they bought some cloth, and Dewi went back to the village, and her whole family started getting involved, and they came back a couple of weeks later with a quilt that Color choices weren't very good, the stitching was so-so, but it was a start. And it sold. One thing led to another, and eventually there were 400 people involved in this. At one point, we had 30 or 40 people working every day in our house. One of these guys got so excited, he said to my wife, he said, do you mind if I just keep working all night? And Arlene said, well, we're, we're going to bed, but you can keep working here in the shed in the backyard. And he worked all night, and the next morning when all his fellow relatives arrived back for work, They all started to laugh, and they said, Dadang, what happened? And Dadang said, well, she taught me how to start, but she never taught me how to stop. (laughs) This quilt was like twice the size of a king-size quilt. They called it the village quilt because they said the whole village could sleep under this thing. And eventually, many, many people came to a saving knowledge of Jesus through that experience. And if you want to see some of the incredible handiwork and the quality work, of some of those quilts. Millions of dollars, literally, of quilts and other crafts have been sold over the years. Why? Simply because of Arlene's availability, even though she had no idea that that's what was coming. And um, they're over there in in Building C, along with all the other displays. Finally, uh, this is a good application for us as we conclude. Jonah's I think biggest surprise was the fact that he so desperately himself needed to experience God's heart-changing work in his own life. And you and I, I venture to guess, will never be used, I mean, I hope I'm wrong, but my guess is we'll never be used on the scale that Jonah was used to see a massive empire impacted and repent in dust and ashes. And yet... God provided that worm and he provided the east wind and he provided all these things because Jonah had so many deep lessons to learn in terms of what God's heart is really all about. And so, brothers and sisters, I don't know of a better place if you are truly sincere about knowing God more and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings than to throw yourself 
into the current of God's redemptive plan and his activity. And it's there that the Spirit of God will refine us and teach us and deepen our understanding of the big picture and of his passionate love and grace and of the scale of his plan. Let us not be simply observers, but let us be active players on the field, engaging in the task. As we join God on his journey, you and I will often be surprised, we'll be surprised by his radical love, his willingness to use us supernaturally, despite all of our fears and our inadequacies and our foibles. And how he prepares people for that message. We are not going alone. He has gone before us. And we will be surprised by how much our own hearts need to change in the process in order to be part of that plan. Perhaps God is speaking to you. I want to encourage you to be alert to the little surprises that God is going to bring into your life. And I would also encourage you to write in your Bible, perhaps somewhere where you'll be reminded regularly, This prayer, it's the prayer of Psalm 67, Lord, bless the nations through me. Pray that one-sentence prayer every day, and I think next to your prayer of salvation, it'll be the most important prayer you can ever pray. Lord, bless the nations through me, and then watch what he does. God bless you, love you, and may he make you a blessing to the nations of the earth. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for the big picture you've given us in your holy word. Thank you for lifting our eyes afresh. Lord, I just pray your Holy Spirit will water the seeds of truth from your word here, planted this morning, and that over the months and years ahead, that you will greatly glorify yourself through your humble servants gathered here this morning. We simply pray, Lord, Speak, because your servants are listening. Bless us, that we might be a blessing, we pray, in the holy and wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Bless you.